Uh, the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Old Testament and uh, probably written by Samuel. Now, you might be wondering, why should we study the Old Testament? Well, you know, the Old Testament constitutes 75% of the Bible. So if you're not going to study the Old Testament, you're leaving out the, the majority of it. And the Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus used. So we need to understand the Old Testament. The book of Judges, the genre of the book of Judges is called, it's a historical narrative. And so historical narrative means this, that Judges is the retelling or the accounts of historical events that are intended to stir the mind and stir the heart. Now, when we read the Bible, all of us are always interpreting, always interpreting. And so it's important that we interpret properly. And I just want to give you a few guidelines for interpreting historical narrative writings like the book of Judges. Here's a few. First off, cultural and historical context is crucial. If you ignore it, you risk misunderstanding the entire point of the story. So you have to understand the culture, where the story took place, but you have to understand the history, when it took place. Historical narratives are actual events that actually took place. So they are not to be subjected to allegories or metaphor-driven interpretation. We can't make a story mean something we want it to mean. It actually happened. It means something on its own. These accounts in the historical narratives, like in the book of Judges, is a really important phrase to understand. They are descriptive, but they are not necessarily prescriptive. They're descriptive, but they're not necessarily prescriptive. What it means is they accurately describe something that happens, but they're not necessarily prescribing that it has to happen that way always. So when we read about the people of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho, that's describing something that happened. It is not God saying, here's how you should always do it. It's very important that we understand the difference between texts that are descriptive and texts that are prescriptive. The primary reason why we have historical narratives like the book of Judges is because they're intended to reveal more to us about who God is and his ways. And the secondary reason is to reveal more to us about ourselves and our ways. And the last thing is when you're interpreting historical narratives like the book of Judges, cannot reduce them to being simply morality tales of here's how you should live and here's how you should not live. When you're interpreting books like Judges, you have to put it in the context of the larger story of Scripture. Okay? So Judges, the book of Judges, recounts the 250 to 300 year period of time in the Israelites between the death of Joshua and the birth of Samuel. That's where Judges is in the Old Testament. How did we get here? Really quickly, I'm going to take you through this. In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, when the Bible begins, this is often referred to as the primeval history. Uh, This is stories like creation and the fall and Cain and Abel and Noah and the building of the Tower of Babel. And Genesis 1 through 11 are referred to as the primeval history. We don't have a great timeline on those events. Genesis 12 is when we really start to get a sense of the timeline of history, and we get introduced to a man named Abraham. Well, then he's called Abraham, and God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you through the world. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to bless the world through you. I want to bless all your descendants. I'm going to bless the world through you. So he chooses Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son. I'm going fast. They had more than one son, but I'm moving. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob eventually has his name changed to Israel. That's where we get the name of the Israelites. Israel has 12 sons. This is where we have the 12 tribes of Israel. Each of the sons is a tribe. And in the 12 sons, we meet a man named Joseph. Joseph ends up bringing his entire family to 
Egypt. And when they first go to Egypt, things are great. But eventually, a pharaoh rises up who fears the Hebrews and puts them into bondage. And this is where we find the story of Egyptian slavery. Now, God sends a man, a deliverer named Moses. And if you've seen the Ten Commandments, uh, you, you've seen the story of Moses. And then Joshua uh, ends up taking over after Moses dies. And then after Joshua dies, this is where we land on the book that we're going to be studying for the next six weeks. It's called Judges. Okay, So Judges is the story of the Israelites taking possession of the land that they've already conquered. So the book of Joshua is all about these guys battling and fighting for the promised land. Well, by the end of the book of Joshua, they pretty much have the land, but the story of Judges is them actually moving into the land and driving out the people who are still in the land. That's, that's what the book of Judges is about. Judges has this cycle in it that's repeated over and over and over, and I'll put it up on the screen for you, and I'll read it to you. The cycle is this. Israel falls into sin and idolatry at about one o'clock there on the clock. Israel is oppressed. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. Israel serves the Lord. And then back again, Israel falls into sin and idolatry. This cycle in the book of Judges is repeated a dozen times. And God raises up 12 different judges. And all these judges are different, quite different from each other. We're going to study a handful of them over the next month and a half. They all came from different hometowns. So I know for some of you that maybe wasn't very interesting, but I would feel irresponsible if we went into this series and didn't give some explanation about where Judges fits in the Old Testament and how we should properly interpret it. What you're probably wondering now is, what does this ancient historical narrative have to do with life in 2017? Well, the very last verse of the book of Judges, so we're jumping to the end, Many uh, theologians and scholars consider it the summary verse of the book of Judges. And this is what it says in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a long time ago, but not much has changed, right? Think about that phrase. Is there a phrase that maybe better describes our society today? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. In fact... In the society that we live in, this sort of postmodern, relativistic, pluralistic, even post-truth society, the worst, most offensive, most narrow-minded, most bigoted thing you can say to another person is that they should not do what they think is right in their own eyes. Just try it at work sometime. See how it goes. Try it in school. You tell someone that what they think is right they shouldn't do, it is considered in our society to be narrow-minded, small-minded, myopic, all of these things. You can't tell someone what's right and what's wrong. Morally, spiritually, ethically, sexually, socially, you cannot say to someone what you think is right is wrong. And so we have a lot in common with the book of Judges. And Judges is really a collection of stories of despicable people doing deplorable things. That's That's a great description of the book of Judges. Despicable people doing deplorable things terribly flawed, unfaithful people, and the judges aren't that much better. And so this morning, we're going to begin our series with a message called A Terrible Start. Have have you ever heard uh, the phrase, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? It was so many of us, we, we want to make sure we get that first 
moment right. We want to start well, whether it's our first day at a new job. Anybody remember the feeling your first day walking to a new job? You want to be impressive. You want to seem intelligent. You want to seem like you deserve to get the job. You want to seem sociable. You want all this pressure you put on yourself to make a first impression. Or maybe for some of you, you can remember back to when you met the parents of someone you were dating and desperate to make that great first impression on, uh, your, on your hopeful future in-laws. Um, maybe it was your first practice with, your, with a new band or a new sports team. Well, whatever it is, we always want to start well. The truth is, is it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Sometimes we don't start out well. I remember my first day of school, I was going to kindergarten. We lived down in Springfield, Missouri at the time, and I wanted to make a, a good impression. I wanted to make a, a good start. And so I went to school that morning, and um, what I remember the most about that day is that I, the whole day, I had to go to the bathroom. But I didn't know the rules. Like, I hadn't learned yet that you were allowed to go. I didn't know who to ask to go. So I was just nervous. I was just like, I guess I just got to hold it until the end of school. And so all day, I'm having to go to the bathroom, and I'm holding it. At the very end of the first day of kindergarten, they take us down, and they line us up for our yearbook pictures. And so I'm in line to get my yearbook picture taken, and it's getting bad. And I'm just doing that little tinkle two-step dance, and, and uh, it's getting to desperation time. And finally, it's my time. It's my turn to get my picture taken. And I'm thinking, you know, all them, they can don't embarrass yourself for any of your classmates. It's the first time you're meeting them. Just start well. And I sit down to get my picture taken. And this is actually my, my uh, picture right here. This is my kindergarten picture. And... <laughs> In this picture, I am literally peeing my pants. (laughs) I peed all over the photography set. Like, I just, that was like, of all the moments to not be able to hold it anymore, it was there. And it's perfectly captured for posterity's sake. It was a terrible start. A terrible start. And this morning, we're going to look at Judges chapter 1 and 2 and see how the, the Israelites get off to a terrible start. And the mistakes that they make are not that much different than the ones that we still make. So Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to read to you the the entire text, but let me just summarize Judges chapter 1, and then we're going to look a little closely at the first four verses of Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 1 is really, it tells us about how nine of the 12 tribes possess their assigned territories and drive out the idolaters or the idolatrous people, the Canaanites and the, the different ites who were living in the land that God had given them. So this Judges chapter 1 tells us how nine of the 12 tribes kind of did it. And it starts with the tribe of Judah. Now, Judah was the fourth son um, of Israel, and Judah is actually the line through which eventually Jesus will be born. So Judah is told in verses 1 to 2 to go possess the land. What's interesting is that Judah... Instead of going and possessing the land, they go to their, their, their big brother Simeon and, and go to the Simeonites and say, hey, we, we were told by God to go take the land. Will you help us out? Why don't you fight with us? Now, listen, it makes perfect sense. It's great common sense, right? More of us, more success, most likely. So it makes common sense from a military standpoint, but it's actually already we're seeing a lack of trust and a lack of obedience to God. God didn't say, go get, your, go get the Simeonites and go take it. He just said, Judah, you go take your land. And Judah was a little afraid. They thought, well, let's trust in the power of man and not in the power of God. 
And so they do go, and the Lord gives the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. So Judah actually enjoys military success at first. We see it in the first 18 verses of of Judges chapter 1. And they drive out the Canaanites, and they drive out the Perizzites. Now I I want to pause for a second and address something that may not bother you, but it bothers lots of people who aren't believers. This is one of the strongest Maybe not strongest, but this is one of the most consistent arguments you'll hear from atheists or agnostics against God. And essentially what they'll say is, they'll say, look at your God in the Old Testament. Look at what he's doing in the book of Joshua. He's ordering the murder of innocent people. Is this really the God that you serve? And they'll throw this argument at you. It's a very difficult one to address because the Bible says what it says, right? I mean, we have to deal with it. So what are we saying? Essentially what they're asking is, is God a moral monster? Is God a moral monster? And, and what do we do with that? The irony, by the way, of, of an atheist making that argument to you is that if you're an atheist, you actually have no grounds for any moral outrage. Because if there's no higher being, if there's no higher standard, then there's no morality. So there's a little irony right off the start that you can't make an argument. Essentially, they're making an argument based on something they don't actually believe. But here are some things... I just want to give you, I'm not an expert on this, but I've listened to a few podcasts, read a few books. This may help some of you as you're talking to your friends and if this question ever comes up. Here's just five, five thoughts to address this issue of, is God a moral monster? Did he really order the murder of innocent women and children? Is this an ethnic cleansing? The first thought is this. Most of the wars in the book of Joshua and Judges were actually not without cause. In many cases... The Canaanites or the enemy uh, were the initiators of the war. But even when they weren't the initiators of the war, they were not without cause. In fact, there's a very interesting verse in Judges chapter 1. In verse 7, one of the kings who was captured and destroyed, he basically says, I had it coming. He owns up to it. He says, this is justice. I've been evil, and this is God's justice at work. And so these battles were not without cause. Number two, These were not ethnic cleansings, certainly not the way that we think about it today in our world. Ethnic cleansing, as we see it around the globe today, is a terrible atrocity against people and against God. This is not a pure ethnic cleansing. We see multiple examples throughout the scriptures, whether it's Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, or the Kenites in verses 16 of the same chapter, Judges chapter 1, or there's another place where it's true of the Jebusites, where people who are foreigners and aliens who live in that land, who decide to trust in God, they become absorbed into the people of Judah. So this is not a, we're going to destroy and wipe out an entire race of people. There was always an opportunity, and there's much writing in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers about how the Israelites are supposed to care for what they would call the alien, not, not E.T., of course, but the foreigner. So, number three, this was, these were not imperialistic conquests. What I mean is, in most traditional battles, the enemy goes in and destroys the people, but takes all their stuff, too. That's called an imperialistic conquest. It's an accumulation of power and possession. This is not what happened in, 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 in the story of Israel. Very often, God would say, you're not allowed to touch anything. You can't take anything. In fact, there's a very famous story where a man named Achan took some gold and silver and some garments and actually caused Israel to be defeated in their very next battle because he disobeyed God's command. Because God was saying, you're not going to trust in your war techniques to accumulate material stuff. You're going to trust in me. So this is not an example of an imperialistic conquest where an army is just trying to gather stuff. 
This forethought is one I've never heard before, but I studied it this week, and it's very interesting. The battles and the wars that the Israelites fought were not all-out slaughters like the language makes it seem in the Bible. Let me explain. There's certain, there's certain slang that we use today when we talk about sports. So last, yesterday, the, the Yankees beat the Pirates in baseball 11-5. to 5. So I might say, did you see that game yesterday? The Yankees killed the Pirates. Now, you wouldn't go, oh, my, that seems drastic. Why did they kill them? Are they, have they been arrested? I mean, you, you, you immediately understand that when I say that the Yankees are going to destroy the Red Sox this year, that I'm not, I'm not saying that they're going to literally, although I'm also not opposed to it literally happening, um, but I, I'm not saying that they're literally going to destroy them. I'm saying they're going to beat them, and they're going to beat them badly. It's, it's, it's called, it's slang, but it's also called sports rhetoric. It's language that makes sense to us in our culture, in our society, but maybe wouldn't make sense at other times. And there was, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, where, this, where all these stories took place, so this is why we have to understand culture, there was a thing called war rhetoric. And war rhetoric was simply this, that when an enemy, when someone defeated their enemy, they always talked as if they had destroyed every single person there. There's many examples, not just from the Bible, but other places in the ancient Near Eastern culture where kings would claim that they had killed every single person and then in the next sentence, they would announce how much in taxes those people owe them moving forward. You see, you see the problem, right? Did you kill everyone? How are they going to pay you taxes? So this, this is called war rhetoric. And when you see things in the Bible about destroying and killing every man, woman, and child, really what's happening is the writers of uh, this, the, the Old Testament are using war rhetoric. Now, let me give you an example from Scripture in case you're not convinced by this. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a king named Saul. And Saul is told to destroy all of the Amalekites. And he goes and he does what? It says that he destroyed every single Amalekite. He says, I killed them all, except who? King Agag. He kept the king and they took some of the stuff because he said he was going to sacrifice it to God. Well, he gets rebuked for it. And in his attempt to repent for his sin, what does he do to King Agag? Puts him to death. So now just, let's just think common sense logic. He's killed all the Amalekites, except for the king. He just killed the king, okay? So if that is literal, then guess what that means? We should never hear about the Amalekites again. They should never emerge again in Scripture. But it's only 12 chapters later where David has to fight and destroy again the Amalekites. So when you read in Scripture that every woman, child, uh, every man, woman, child were killed, it's war rhetoric. Were innocent people killed in these battles? Most likely. I mean, we, we can't get around that either. But it's not what it quite sounds like. And you wouldn't understand that if you don't understand the culture. And then this is the last thought I want to share about this, is that the, the other thing about these holy wars, if you want to call them that, is that they actually were not out of sync with God's heart to, to bless the other nations. Now, that might sound crazy at first. God wants to bless other nations, so he goes and destroys them. But in every culture, in every society, there are different ways to try to convince people that your God is the real God. So in our world today, very often it's through our personal stories, right? You tell someone what God has done for you. Or maybe it's intellectualism. Or maybe it's a spiritual experience. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, do you know how they determined who was the real God? Who won the battle? Who won the battle? This is powerful. Because there's actually an evangelistic leaning within these wars. If the Israelites go in and lose these battles, like they do eventually when they go into exile, 
When Israel gets dragged off in exile, you know what all the Assyrians and Babylonians think about Yahweh? He's not a real God. His people just lost because real gods win their battles. So when the Israelites were marching around winning battles, it was actually a form of, this might sound weird, but it was actually a form of evangelism. It was actually a way of saying, this is the one true God. A real God wins his battles. And ultimately, God is doing all of this in Joshua and Judges to preserve a people through which he can eventually bless the world in the person of Jesus. So when we see these wars in Joshua and these battles in Judges, the real purpose is told to us in verse 2 of Judges chapter 1 is to break down the altars. They're trying to cleanse Canaan from the idols and the idolatrous people because God is trying to form a people who can live in covenant faithfulness with him. You know, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they were monotheistic people. That means they only believed in one God. No one else was like that at that time. Everybody else was polytheistic. It meant they believed in many gods. So the Israelites come in, and God's trying to establish a covenant faithful people, and so he tells them to break down the altars. Now, through verse 18 of chapter 1, they're doing pretty well. But then we get to verse 19 in chapter 1, and it says that the people of Judah were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Okay? So now Judah seems to run up against an enemy that they cannot drive out, that they cannot defeat. However, in Judges chapter 2, we see God's perspective on it. And here's basically what God says. God says, you said you could not, and here's what really the issue was, you would not. You, you say, I can't, and God's saying in chapter 2, it's actually, you won't. Now, this is really important because the issue is not their lack of strength, but it's their lack of, or it's not their lack of strength, but it's their lack of faith in God's strength. They're looking at their strength and saying, we can't. And God's saying, no, you won't trust in my strength. This is, a, this is very important for us to understand. And it, it actually has a lot of implications for our lives today. Because how many times do we say in our lives, I can't stop doing that. I can't resist that temptation. I can't let go of that. I can't forgive. I can't afford to be generous. I can't be honest at work. I can't. And God would say to you the same thing he said to the Israelites, you can't or you won't. You can't or you won't. Are you trusting in your strength or are you trusting in his? Now the rest of the chapter, uh, the rest of chapter one, we see the same pattern of partial obedience. Benjamin fails to dislodge the Jebusites. Joseph makes a covenant with a Canaanite. Manasseh fails to drive out the inhabitants and decides instead to exploit them as slaves because it makes more economic sense. Ephraim allows the Canaanites to live among them. Zebulun opts for forced labor just like Manasseh. Asher and Naphtali actually are worse than Ephraim because instead of letting the Canaanites live among them, the Bible says they decided to live among them. And then Dan, uh, the, the one guy who got the most boring name, uh, he, he goes in and it says that he was confined to the hill country, so he didn't possess his land. So you got nine tribes just in chapter one and none of them obey. They're all at best in partial obedience. Chapter one, it could appear to be a series of relatively successful conquests, but in each case, the people were told to remove, the people that they were told to remove, and more significantly, the idols that they were told to remove remain. And it's a terrible start. And it only sets the stage for something much, much worse to come. And here's where we get to the text I actually want us to look at this morning in Judges chapter 2. Let's read this. Um, it'll be on the, on the screen for you. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
I'm reading to you from the ESV. It says, now the angel of the Lord, that's, a, that's called a theophany, that's, the, that's Jesus uh, involved in Old Testament activity. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have disobeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. And here's our key phrase this morning. And their gods shall be a snare to you. Verse four, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Three things I just want to point out to you from this text this morning is this, the snare, the cost, and the way out. The snare, the cost, and the way out. Let's talk first about the snare. Uh, something I know about snares and traps, now, I'm not a hunter, uh, I'm not opposed to hunting, but I'm, I didn't grow up around guns, so I'm not really comfortable with guns. I'm, 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 uh, I'm not interested in sitting in a tree for 12 hours, so I'm not really a hunter. I, I do like when people hunt and give me the meat that they get, but um, recently I was down at a, at a camp in Windsor. Windsor is just east of Binghamton, and the Assemblies of God has a campground there, and one of my friends who hunts deer on that property, he showed me. He said, he said look, he, he, we were driving. He said, stop. He goes, look right there in the clearing. He goes, that's, that's like a killing ground for deer. He's like, they all come out there. They come out to mate. They come out in the rut. And he's like, I sit up in that tree and just pa pa pa, And I just, I get deer. He, and he began to tell me about the different things you can do. You can, it's illegal to put salt licks up during the hunting season, but you can do it before the hunting season. And what it does is it creates a pattern for the deer. They'll come to get salt and they'll go get water. And you sort of create this habit in the deer and you're kind of tricking the deer. And, and you know, hunters use traps when they go out and hunt. Um, some, some hunters, I, I was talking to Gary the other day, his dad was a duck hunter. And, and duck hunters use these beautifully crafted duck decoys. And they look like they're something, but, but, but they're something else. They also use uh, traps often that are like, they'll make a pit in the ground and they'll cover it up so it looks like it's just level ground and the animal's just walking and falls in and either breaks its leg or can't get out and sometimes. But the one that I'm most familiar with are the deer hunters because I have some friends that hunt deer and they do some very interesting things to snare and to trap and to bring in deer. One of them is, is they do these calls. And if you're a deer hunter tonight, you, or this morning, you probably could do a call for me right now. They do this little, I'm not going to try and do it because it just sounds ridiculous, but it's this grunting noise. And apparently it's this noise that deers make when they're in heat. And it's this sort of, and they'll sit up in the tree and they'll make this noise and the deer will come in. The other thing that was kind of, dis- was kind of alarming to me is that some of them order online something called buck urine. And... It's exactly what it sounds like. Um, and they'll put it on themselves to, to make themselves smell in a way that will pull deer in. And I don't know how I feel about it. Um, you know, some people call hunting a sport. And I actually know people around the state that they don't hunt just for sport. They hunt for their lives. Their animals or their families eat that meat uh, their whole winters, the whole winter. But um, they call it a sport. But I have some thoughts about calling hunting a sport. And the first one is this. I think sports, both people have the same equipment, right? So, I mean, I, I, you know, the deers don't, aren't quite armed like the hunters are. But the other thing about calling it a sport is, in my opinion, any sport 
where you cover yourself in your opponent's urine, no matter what happens next, you're the loser. Like, you, you, you lost. And uh, so they, they, they use these things to snare animals. Here's the, thing, here's the first thing I want to say about snares. Snares appear to be something they aren't. They appear to be something that they aren't. These duck decoys appear to be real. They aren't. These, these noises appear to be uh, sound coming from deer. They aren't. Snares appear to be something that they aren't. It appears to be something it isn't. And idols are snares because they appear to be something they are not. Let me give you a couple quick examples. Idols are false gods. It appears to be addition, but it's subtraction. Now, this was the issue with the Israelites. No good Israelite, no good Hebrew actually ever rejected Yahweh completely. It was never a full-out rejection of Yahweh. And that's really, you know, those of us in here that are Christians, it, it would take a lot for us to completely ever reject God and reject Jesus. That's not the danger for us, most likely. The danger for us is the same danger that the Israelites had. It was adding gods to Yahweh. It was, it's called syncretism. It's I can synchronize my belief with Jesus with my trust and hope in these things too. And it appears to be addition. It actually looks like you're getting more gods. And who wouldn't want more gods? Because more gods means more protection and means more ways to, more people to go to when you have problems. It appears to be addition, but it's subtraction because Jesus plus anything actually takes away Jesus. So if you're, if you're trusting in Jesus, but you're adding things to it, if you're trusting in other things also, if it's idolatry, heart idolatry, it appears to be addition, but it's subtraction. Let me give you some things that we add to Jesus in the church world. Jesus plus political power. Jesus plus moral superiority. Jesus plus mystical experiences. Jesus plus a church that fits all of your preferences perfectly. Jesus plus a platform for your gifts. Jesus plus ministry success. Any of those things can become idols. They appear to be addition, but they're actually subtraction because as we begin to add to Jesus, we lose him altogether. Idols appear to be the path to freedom, but they're actually slavery because you feel like if I just had that, I would finally be free. And anything that you have to have has you. And it's your pursuit of that thing that's actually keeping you in bondage. There's a story that I've, I've told before about the way uh, hunters will hunt certain monkeys in, in specific areas of the world where they'll either take a little bottle or they'll carve out a gourd and they'll make a very narrow entrance for the hand of the monkey. And inside the gourd or inside the bottle, they'll put a sweet piece of fruit or something shiny, something that they know the monkey will want. And the monkey will walk up to it and will take its hand and reach its hand into it and grab hold of the thing inside it and make a fist around it. But then when the monkey tries to pull its hand out, it can't. The, the, the opening was narrow enough for a hand like this, but not a hand like this. And that gourd or that bottle is tied to a tree so the monkey can't get away. And in those situations, the hunter can literally walk up right behind the monkey and grab it because it won't let go. So idols appear to be giving us freedom. We think, if I could just get my hand around that, if I could just have that in my life, I would be free. But what we learn over time is it's your very grip on that thing that actually enslaves you because you can't get free. Idols appear to be the path to happiness, but they lead to despair. You know, once you've tasted of something, you're not happy with less. You need more. Recently, they opened a new movie theater in Syracuse called the Movie Tavern over in Township 5 over in Camillus. I don't know if you've gone there or not. I'm, I probably shouldn't even recommend it to you because it's a little addictive. Um, 
But you go there, and first off, you can order food while you're watching the movie, like legit food, not popcorn, but like burgers and pizza, and they bring it to you while you're sitting there. And they're also recliner chairs. So they're these very comfy recliner chairs, and you can go all the way back as you're watching the movie. And uh, I think what I actually like most about it is that you pre-order your tickets, and you choose your seats in advance. So there's no rushing to the theater early to try and pick out your seat. You have your seat. You can walk in right when it starts. So we go there sometimes, and the problem with it, though, is that once you've gone to the movie tavern, all the other theaters in Syracuse that you used to think were great, I don't want to go to them anymore. I don't want to go to Great Northern. I don't want to go to Destiny. I want Because once you've tasted something that's better, you don't want to go back to the other thing. And we think that our idols and the things that we love and trust and obsess over will lead us to happiness, but they actually lead us into despair because once we have it, where do we go from there? How do we get more of it? And how do we avoid ever going back to less? Anne Voskamp uh, wrote a little article just this week about fame. And she said this, she said, in a world where there are 93 million selfies taken every day, I'll let that sink in for a second, 93 million selfies taken every day. The strange thing is, for all the striving to be seen, here's what we're learning. The more exposed we are in social media, the more unknown we can feel in real life. Fame and feeling noticed isn't the same thing as being known and feeling loved. Fame appears to be something, but it's something else. Lastly, our idols can appear to be respectable, but they're actually evil. See, idols are not always bad things. They are often good things that we make into God things. Here are some good things. The desire to provide for our families, the desire to belong in community, the desire to be respected, to be respectable, the desire for good health, the desire for security. Those are, those are not bad things. Those, are, those seem very respectable, and we build our lives on them. But the problem is, is that the same sort of respectable behavior that is the fruit of pursuing certain things, that very thing that you pursue will eventually create evil behavior in your life. So if what you love most is providing for your family, it may make you a very hard worker. It may make you very faithful to the job. It may make you on time every day. It may make you get all the awards. But when that gets taken from you, that idol that you crave, that you love, that you worship, when you can't do it anymore, it can lead people into doing things they thought they would never do because they still love and serve that thing. It appeared to be respectable, respectable but it's evil. So what, what are our idols? And uh, here are some questions. I've given you questions before. These are new ones that I've been thinking about this week. Here's some questions to reflect on and ask yourself so you can identify some of the gods that could be snares to you in your life. Number one, what has the power over you to consistently ruin your day? What, what event, what circumstance, what person, what series of events, what has that sort of power over your heart? That every single time it happens, you know, this is going to ruin my day. Whatever that thing is, it's threatening what you love most. And what you love most is your true God. Here's another question to ask yourself. What has the power to instantly lift my mood and fill my heart? What has the power to instantly uh, lift my mood and fill my heart? You know, so some days for me, it's a it's a nice burger, but um, whatever it is for you, uh, there are things that we look to to lift our spirits and to fill our hearts. Here's another question to ask yourself. What do I most want people to discover about me when I first meet them? How do I try to spin the initial conversation so that they'll learn X, Y, and Z about me? You're always trying to, there's a hilarious 
uh, there was a character on the old sh- American version of The Office named Andy Bernard. And if you ever watched that show, Andy Bernard graduated from, you should know this if you watch the show, he graduated from Cornell. Because in every single conversation he was having, he tried to bring it up. It didn't ha- the conversation didn't have to have anything to do with education or school, but somehow he fit in. Did you know I'm a graduate of Cornell? So what is the one thing that in every single time you meet someone, you, you're hopeful that the conversation will spin in a direction that they'll, they'll have the opportunity to discover something that's true about you? It's probably a wonderful thing that's true about you, by the way, but it's also something that could be a God to you. Here's one more, or two more questions. What, view, what worldview do you hold to what worldview do you use to make sense of others in life that cannot be challenged by anyone else without you losing your temper, losing your joy? In other words, what bias do you have that you cannot allow to ever be questioned? What is it that you hold to? What worldview do you hold to so strongly that anytime someone challenges it or questions it, it could be a political worldview, could be a social worldview, could be a religious worldview, could be a lot of different things. And when someone begins to present a different worldview, especially in a credible way, it destabilizes you, and it upsets you. And the last question is this. What is the specific behavior pattern or chosen affiliation in your own life that you always default to when you are trying to compare yourself favorably to someone else? It's probably a better way for me to say that, but basically here's what I'm trying to say. When you're trying to feel better than others, what do you always remind yourself about yourself? At least I'm this. At least I'm in with this group. At least I believe this. At least I act this way. These are some serious questions to ask our own hearts. And you're going to actually, the answers you're going to come up with is, you're going to look at it and go, that's a pretty innocent list of things. The problem is, is that they can become snares to you because we put our trust and hope in them. So snare, it appears to be something it isn't. But secondly, a snare promises life but delivers death. Now, I like to fish a little bit. I'm not, I'm not huge into it, but I got a friend that owns a boat on Oneida Lake, and we'll go out, and I'll take Lily out. We'll go fishing sometimes. And my only issue with fishing is that as someone who loves to eat food so much, I feel like it's a little cruel that you kill a fish with the promise of their food. It's like, like if we were killed that way, I would have been gone a long time ago. Like If it was just like people dangling burgers in the air, I would have been caught. I would have been the first fish caught. And so there's something about like, Here's, here's a tasty little meal for you. It's going to be life for your body. Oh, yummy. You're dead. Like, there, there's just something about it that seems a, a little bit cruel to me until I'm eating that same fish later. Then I'm happy about it. But, um, but what's really cruel to me when it comes to fishing is that, is that sometimes you're not even using a real worm. So it's like you're promising them a meal. It's like at least let them die with a, their belly full. But instead, they die with a mouthful of metal or a mouthful of rubber, some sort of fake lure. And when I think about how idols promise life but deliver death, and when I think about fishing, I heard this phrase a while ago, and it always stuck, stuck with me. It's true in fishing. It's true in, in, when it comes to idolatry. The bait may be fake, but the hook is always real. The bait may be fake, but the hook is always real. And these things promise life to you. If you could just get me, you're going to feel so alive. If you could just get your arms around me, you're going to feel so alive. But once you get it, all of a sudden, the bait was fake, but the hook was real. And idols promise life, but they deliver death. Because ultimately, an idol or a God will say, you give your life to have me. You sacrifice yourself to have me. But the Bible says that we are living sacrifices. Because why? We don't have to die for our God. Why? Because our God died for us. And so 
these are what snares do. Okay, so the snare. Second thing here is the cost. One of the most sobering verses in the Bible is this. Uh, in, Genesis, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says this. All the generation were gathered to their fathers, which means that everybody in, in uh, Joshua's generation died. And then listen to what it says. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Is that sobering? In one generation, another generation rises up who doesn't know God or the things that God had done. Now, when you study the text, this is not a mental forgetfulness. It's not a cognitive forgetfulness. It's not that they literally forgot that God delivered them from Egypt. They've been told those stories over and over. They didn't forget the details of what God had done. But what it means is this, is that what God had done for them was no longer central or precious to them. It was no longer identity forming to them. It was no longer the story that made sense of their story. And the truth is, is that we're always one generation away from forgetting. So the cost of being caught up in a snare is that your children and your grandchildren will grow up in a world where they will not know God or what he has done. As parents, as grandparents, as uncles, as, as aunts, as those who are investing into the next generation, what do we do? How do we love the next generation in such a way to avoid this? Well, three thoughts. Number one, we have to love God wholeheartedly. I'm not talking about perfection, but a lifestyle of repentance and rejoicing. Number two, we have to apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives. There's a very important passage, by the way, if you're a parent or a grandparent, that you should read and study. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a really powerful passage for parents and grandparents to read. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, Moses says, You shall teach the law diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. What's Moses saying? He's simply saying this. Every moment of your life is formative. Everything is formative. So this is not just about information through lectures and teaching. It's not just I'm going to get my kid the right information so that they will follow God. But discipleship, true discipleship, moms and dads, is life on life. And you're walking, and you're sitting down, and you're standing up, and you're going. Everything Apply the gospel to every aspect of your life, every moment. And then number three, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, it says this. When your son asks you in the future, what is the meaning of all of this, the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that God has given us? When your child says, what does it all mean? Here's what you say to your son. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And here's another way that we serve the next generation. We tell them our story. Really, we're telling them God's story. We're linking doctrine to life. So it's just not theoretical truth, but it's here's what it looks like in your life. The result of forgetting the story of God, the cost is the next generation suffers, but the other cost we see in verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Here's, here's a bullet point list of things that they did. They abandoned God. They went after other gods, and they bowed down to them. They provoked God to anger. They served Baal. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. He gave them over to plunderers. He sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them. It was supposed to be for them, but now the hand of the Lord is against them, and then it summarizes itself this way. They were in terrible distress. The snare, the cost, and in closing this morning, the way out. He said in Judges chapter two, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. 
You shall break down their idols, but you've disobeyed my voice. And here we run into one of the most important tensions in all of the Old Testament, and it's simply this. How can God remain faithful to an unfaithful people? How can a holy, faithful God remain faithful to an unholy, unfaithful people? When you read the Old Testament, you should notice sometimes God's promises seem unconditional. Didn't it sound unconditional at the beginning? I'll never forget my covenant with you. Unconditionally, I will never forget my covenant with you. But then there seem to be conditions too. And when you, you have to keep your end of the covenant too. How can God remain holy and faithful? How can he be both merciful and just? Well, what does God do? In closing, I'll say this. In chapter two, verse 16, which sets the stage for the rest of the book and really foreshadows the rest of the scriptures, it says this in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who raised them out of the hand of those who plundered them. And for the next five weeks, we're gonna study these judges. And those messages, by the way, this one was a little longer because I needed to do 10 minutes of introduction. Those messages won't be quite as much content, but we're gonna look at these judges and learn about them. The Lord raised up judges. Now, when you look at this verse, one thing that we have to understand is that God is accountable for everything. He is responsible for everything that happens in this text. So God is, he orchestrates it all. He orchestrates the deliverer, but he also orchestrates the plunderer, okay? This is God is responsible for all of this. He allows the plunderer so that the people of Israel can learn that they should be dependent upon him in all things and that they will never find their deepest satisfaction in idols. In other words, God knows that the greatest risk for them and the greatest risk for you and me is not our physical comfort, but our spiritual condition. And God will risk your physical comfort to address your spiritual condition. And this is what he does with the people of Israel. He sends the plunderer so that they would not trust in their own strength, but that they would call out to God for a deliverer. He sends the deliverer. Now, none of the judges that we will study in the next two months were good enough to change the hearts of the people. But as we keep reading in scripture, we find that Jesus comes eventually to be our true and better judge. He's the greater judge. And Jesus came, according to John three seventeen, as a judge not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And at the cross, we see the tension resolved where the mercy of God and the justice of God collide together because in humankind's place, Jesus kept the covenant perfectly with his righteous life and he secured for those of us who identify with him the blessings that God has promised. But Jesus also endured the judgment that a just and holy judge must pour out in humanity's place, taking for us the punishment that we deserve. And here's how Paul summarizes it in Romans 3.26. Because of the cross, God is both just, he's still righteous, he kept his word, but he's also the justifier. He's both of them. He's the just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ. So God kept his word, but he also kept his people. He also rescued us. And there was no other way to do it than the cross. And so we're going to come forward in just a moment and partake of the communion elements and reflect upon there was no way to resolve the unfaithfulness of his people. And let's be personal. There's no way to resolve my unfaithfulness to a faithful God without the cross. It's the only solution. There's a, there's a term, a legal term that's used called double jeopardy. You maybe have heard of it before, but double jeopardy is a procedural defense that prevents somebody who's been accused of a crime of being tried again for the same thing. So even if more evidence comes later and they realize they got it wrong, if someone is acquitted of a crime, they cannot be tried again of the same crime. It's called double jeopardy. 
And in God's courtroom, Jesus Christ stood in your place and he took your conviction. He took the conviction that you deserved and you stood there and you received the acquittal. And here's what you need to hear this morning. God is a just judge and he will not try you again on the same charges and the same facts, no matter what the accuser says about you. The accuser of our souls will say all sorts of terrible things about us, but God will say, I've already settled this court issue. The conviction's already been given out. The, the, the price has already been paid. Jesus took our conviction for us. He's a just judge. He will not try us again for it. So what that means is we are now free to receive the blessings of God and we're free from the judgment of God because of our faith in Jesus Christ's work on our behalf. Let's bow our heads together and pray.